Hey, welcome home, everybody. You're watching Legacy Television. I'm Jeremy Pearsons, and we're so delighted to have you with us today in the house of faith, because there's always a place for you in this house, the household of faith. We're the family of God. He's our father. This isn't just religion. This isn't just uh, some cold, lifeless connection. This is relationship that we have with him. And he's our father. He's the daddy of this house, and he has made a place for every single one of us. I hope you've enjoyed Legacy Television over the last several weeks and several months as we've talked about the anointing, what it is to be anointed, well, anointed what the anointing does on your life, the power that the anointing has to turn you in to somebody else. And one of the greatest things any believer, any child of God is ever going to find out is what God has anointed them to do. You are anointed. Yeah, I know you know that Jesus is anointed, but you have been anointed with some of that same anointing and the presence of God, the spirit of God and the power of God is present on you right now to do all that he's called you to do. Right now, we're gonna go right back into family night, keep talking about the anointing. And I believe today, as you listen to this, as you watch this, you will be strengthened, encouraged, and blessed in Jesus' name. Listen to what it says again in verse three, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Every time he says the word for here, what's he talking about? Talking about an exchange that's got to take place. And that's what Jesus came with the anointing to do. Make the exchange. Make the exchange. Put up, um, we're going to look at a lot of verses tonight. Put up Galatians 3, verse 13. I know you've heard this one before, but I want you to see it again. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13, talking about Jesus, but I want you to notice the words he used here. What's the very first word of this, ver of this verse? Christ. So he's referring specifically to the anointed one and his anointing, right? We understand that. We agree on that, right? So Christ, the anointing, has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The anointing did that. Now, the word redeemed means an exchange took place. There was a payment that took place. But I want you to notice, the anointing did that. How did the anointing do it? Having become a curse for us. Man, this is so powerful. Listen to this. Jesus the Christ on the cross became Jesus the cursed. He traded it. He traded his anointing, his anointing for your curse. This was the exchange. Jesus the anointed became Jesus the cursed. Jesus the burden remover became Jesus the burdened. Jesus the yoke destroyer entered into an exchange with you and became Jesus the yoke bearer. There's an exchange here taking place. And this is what the anointing is all about. Especially as you read it here in Isaiah 61, I'm coming to make an exchange. You're poor. I'll exchange that poverty for the gospel. You're brokenhearted. I'll exchange that. I'll get rid of that and I'll give you healing for it. 
You held captive, I've got liberty. Let's make a trade. And this is what Jesus said, all you who are burdened, heavy burdened, what do you say? Come to me and I will give you a little more to carry. No, what do you say? I will give you, I'm gonna trade you. Let's make a trade. I'll give you all my rest for all your burden. Now, I know it's not a fair trade, but don't say anything because he's offering, okay? Take it. I want you to see the exchange that's taking place here. Console those who mourn in Zion. Give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I want you to get the picture that these words create. The garment of praise. What is a garment? It's something you put on. It's something you wear. And I told you, this is what's supposed to define us. Have you heard the, the term before, the expression, the clothes make the man? <laughs> well, it, it's not a scripture, but I do think there is some truth somewhere in it, as long as you're talking about these clothes, because this is what's supposed to define us. People are supposed to be witnesses of our lives, and there is supposed to be a big, major, black and white, night and day difference between those who know Jesus and those who don't. Those filled with the Spirit and those not. Those in fellowship with the Father and those not. There's supposed to be a difference. And people are supposed to be able to look into the window of our lives at any given moment. Whether they're looking into the living room. Whether they're looking into the front seat of the car. Or they're looking into the house or to the sanctuary or to the office. And they're supposed to be able to see something different on you than what's on everybody else. And Jesus was anointed with this oil of joy more than anybody else. And you got to understand, especially in the world that we live in, how much joy just stands out. I mean, you could line up a bunch of people and if they weren't saying anything, but nine of them had this look on their face right here, right here. You see that? That scowl, serious, frustrated, angry, confused. And you get to that last guy, and this is him. How much does this stand out right here? What's that guy's deal, right? It's the oil of joy. It's supposed to make you and I stand out. The house of the Lord is supposed to be a house of joy, a house of joy. He's talking to us about this garment of praise that we're supposed to be putting on. And some of you have heard me mention this before, but people make a big deal, especially now in the culture, the church culture that we live in. You know, are you a modern church? Are you a traditional church? Are you a casual church or a dressy church? You know, all these kinds of things. And a lot of it comes down to what you wear to church. Are you a suit and tie kind of place? Are you a jeans and button up? Are you shorts and t-shirt? I mean, we got those too. What are you? And people want to make a fuss out of church clothes. And I remember being a kid when church clothes was a deal. And I had clothes that I didn't wear anywhere else but church. And you didn't do anything else in those clothes. You didn't play in those clothes. You didn't go to school in those clothes. Why? Because we don't want to mess up your church clothes. And people want to fuss and fight now about church clothes. But how many of you know these are our church clothes? This garment of praise, this is what we should be dressed in right here. And I think God is way more interested in whether or not you got this on 
or the tie or the open collar shirt or the, the what? come on, come on. We're not talking about the clothes that we wear to church. We're talking about the clothes that we wear because we are the church. And what you and I are supposed to have on is this garment of praise. So what exchange was there supposed to be? Well, it's as simple as changing clothes. It's the same thing Paul wrote in the New Testament when he said, put on the, old, the, the new man, put off the old man. Change your clothes. Put that thing off, put this thing on. And every single one of us have done it. We've all put something on, got to look at it, <laughs> and said, this isn't going to work, right? And went right back in there and put something else on. And fellas, a lot of times we've had help at arriving at that conclusion, haven't we, Dale? I mean, you've probably been married a while, right? I'm thinking that at some point or another, Jill has looked at you and said, is that what you're going to wear? Because, and you know by now, of course, we, us married men, we know that that is, needs to be translated from, is that what you're going to wear to, that's not what you're going to wear. <laughs> that's the actual translation of that question. It wasn't a question, Blake. I'm, you're, you're fairly new to this. It's not a question. It's a, it is a, 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 a declarative. <laughs> that is not. But the same thing's supposed to be happen, happening in us spiritually all the time. And I told you earlier that whatever anointing you're talking about, the bottom line is with it, it has to be yielded to. And whether or not you feel like praising, the garment of praise is something you put on before you ever feel like it. It's got to be yielded to. And there's far too many of us, and I'm sad to say I've done it more times than I want to even admit. I have walked around even for days on end covered up in the spirit of heaviness. Heaviness. One translation says it like this, and I think this is cool because you know that according to Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your So what is this heaviness then? It's weakness. And there's one translation that says you're covered up in, in this spirit of weakness. If joy is your strength, then this mourning and this heaviness and this sadness is not serving to do anything but compromise and undermine strength. But joy has got to be yielded to. It's got to be yielded to, especially when you don't feel like it. Most especially then. That garment of praise has got to be put on, especially when you'd, be, you'd rather be in the house in your comfy clothes you know, the ones that you don't want anybody to see you in. That's that spirit of heaviness. That's that old, ugly, worn out stuff that we throw on and we just want to lay around in it and wallow around in it. But then more than any other time, you've got to put that off and put something else on this garment of praise. And it's interesting to me when you think back through every one of these things, the poverty and the brokenheartedness and the captivity, and he comes to mourning. This was a permanent state of humanity and mankind. When you look up the word mourning, it means exactly what you think it means. It's a cry, but it's one specifically in response to death. To death. And until Jesus, death was death. Death was death, man. And the more I just got 
to thinking about this and praying about this, the thought occurred to me today, and if you don't leave with anything else tonight, I want it to be this right here. And I felt like I heard the Lord ask me this. Do you know why Satan hates Jesus the way he does? I mean, we would agree, right? They, they, don't, they don't get along. They don't work together. You want to know why Satan so just vehemently hates him, despises him? You want to know why? It's because Jesus completely ruined death. Just ruined it, man. I mean, he just totally messed the whole thing up because until Jesus, death was the man. Until Jesus, when somebody died, they stayed dead. And Jesus shows up with this anointing and ruins death for everybody. Just completely ruins it, utterly destroys death. That's what the scripture says. He came and he destroyed him who had the power of death and he released them who all their lifetimes were subject to the bondage of fear. This is why Satan hates Jesus. You, you ruined death. You ruined it for everybody. And that's exactly what he did. He ruined death because until Jesus, death had a sting until Jesus' death had a bite. But Jesus didn't just ruin death for the one who died. He ruined it for all of us still here. Because this is what all this mourning is about. It's the cry of pain in response to death. It's, it's, the, it's that deep sense of misery because of loss. Something that you had, you lost it, and you'll never have it again. You'll never see it again. And Jesus ruined all of that. This is why Satan hates him so much. You ruined death. You ruined it for everybody. But not only for the one who died, but for the rest of us. For the rest of us, he ruined death. What did he ruin death with? The oil of joy. He ruined it. Absolutely destroyed death with the oil of joy. And this is the reason Satan hates him, because he ruined it, not just for the one who died, but for those still living. Now I'm, gonna, I'm trusting the Lord to help us put these dots together tonight. I want you to look at First um, Thessalonians chapter four, speaking of this in response to death. Well, just back up to verse nine. There's some good things here. Verse nine, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you brethren that you increase more and more that you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business. That's a good word right there. To work with your own hands. And we commend you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside that you may lack nothing. But listen to this from verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I don't want you to be uninformed, he's saying. And he's writing to people who don't have the luxury of 2,000 years of this being preached and taught and revelation in it. He's writing to people 
who, this is news. This whole thing that Jesus has done, this whole death, resurrection, ascension, righteousness, everything you're saying, we believe it, but it's pretty new news to us. And so he's informing them, educating them. Let me explain to you what's happened. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. He says, don't be ignorant about it. Because if you are, you're going to sorrow. You're going to grieve like people who don't have hope. He says in verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The difference between us and them. A lot of differences. We've already talked about joy, but I want you to make a connection here in this word that he's talking about in hope. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant because if you don't understand what I'm telling you about people who have died, then the only, only possible response is sorrow. The only available response is grief and mourning. And until Jesus, people didn't even know they had another option, right? Because death was death. And when it happened, there was no more. You had them and now you don't and you never will again. And death was the man. Death was the final say-so. And Jesus ruined all of that. He said, but I don't want you to sorrow like people who don't have a hope. I want you to think about the three time tenses, past present, future. Which time tense does hope belong in? I know we have it in the present, but do you hope for something concerning the past? No. What do you hope concerning? Future. That's what the word hope literally means. It means a confident expectation of good. Well, you can't expect anything out of the past. That's done. That's gone. But the Bible talks about in Romans chapter eight, he says, if somebody hopes for what he sees, then it's not hope. Because if you can see it, it's here. It's now. Somebody say it's here, it's here. and it's now. This is, this is the present tense. This is the world that we're, we're currently in right now. But hope doesn't operate in this tense. We have it now, but it reaches out and looks forward to the future, right? The confident expectation of good. He says, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. It has to do with the future. People with no hope sorrow and mourn because of death and loss. But we have hope, which is our expectation of good. Some of these things I've never said before, so I'm going to ask you just to believe God with me. I want you to go to for, uh, excuse me, John chapter 14. Look at something Jesus said about this. It is not okay for a born-again believer to walk around dressed in the spirit of heaviness. It's not okay. Not for any one of us. We've been offered 
a different garment. We've been offered something else to put on. In John chapter 14, what did I tell you? Did I say that right? John 14. Look what Jesus said in verse 1. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You look this word troubled up and it literally means agitated. These guys are frustrated. And honestly, right now, they're frustrated with Jesus. They're troubled at some things he had said to them. What did he say? What, what, what is it he had said? What's he introducing? If we look at the verses before it and around it, he's talking to them and telling them, I'm going away. And these guys are like, whoa, 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 wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean you're going away? And Jesus would later say to them just in a chat, or maybe later on in this chapter or the next, in 14, 15, 16, he, he looked at them and said, it's literally better for you if I go. Now we understand that because we have the luxury of looking back and the Holy Spirit's coming and all it's everything's gonna be great, guys. Don't worry about it. But they're in, they were in there here and now. And they said, what do you mean it's better that you go away? I remember life before you. It's not better. <laughs> life before you was one way. You showed up, you changed everything and now you're going away. Don't try to tell me this is better for me. And he says, no, this is better for you. He says here in chapter 14, verse one, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then I like what he said in verse two, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. So he's talking to them about the here and now condition of their heart, right? And he's saying, don't let your heart be troubled. Here, let me help you with your troubled heart. But notice what he did. He didn't help them by changing the here and now. He helped them by telling them about the then and there. This is the help to a troubled heart. What's coming? What's ahead? What's in the future? How many believe that what Jesus said is right and true? that he has gone to prepare a place for us. How many believe that there are many mansions in his father's house and that, that there's one for you and one for me and that he has prepared a place for us? Let me ask you something. Even if you don't know a lot about heaven and I don't claim to know a lot about heaven, I do know this. It's going to be pretty good. I think there will be a fair amount of joy, right? I think there's going to be a lot of celebration. I think it's going to be peace on a level we have never experienced. I think there's going to be no more crying, no more dying. I think this because this is what the word tells us about it. Do you believe this about heaven? Do you believe that heaven is a real place? That it's a reality and that it exists and that you're headed there and that it's your eternal home? With your father? Do you believe this about heaven? Do you believe that there is great joy there, then and there? Well, Jesus is talking to them and he says, Look, I know what your heart's going through right now. You're sensing loss. He starts talking to them about death, his, and you're sensing loss. You're, you feel like you're losing me. But here, let me help this, let me fix this. But he didn't fix it by saying, okay, I'll stay. He didn't fix it by changing not one thing in the here and now. He fixed it by giving them something else to look at. 
Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Legacy TV Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this. And if you'd like to hear more of Jeremy and Sarah, subscribe to this podcast and download the Legacy Studios app. From there, you'll have access to the Legacy Television Broadcast, the Legacy Letter Magazine, and so much more. You can also visit pearsonsministries.com to contact us directly and find out how you can get involved with everything that's happening here at Legacy Studios. Be blessed today. We love you. Remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith. 